We have our monthly welcome meeting after service today, so would like to invite some of you to stick around for under 15 minutes, just under 15 minutes. But if you're new to our church, maybe you've been uh, attending for quite a while, maybe just a few services, or maybe this is your first Sunday, we'd like an opportunity to just introduce you to who we are as a church. And so in this room right off to the side, if you could just head that way, as soon as we're done with our worship service today, again, we'd just like to spend about 15 minutes with you, have uh, some information we'd like to put in your hands and introduce you to a few of our leaders, and then we would send you on your way. So again, if you are visiting or have been visiting, we would encourage you to stop by for that welcome meeting right after service. In the previous chapter of this letter that we're studying, 1 Corinthians, that is chapter 8, that is where Paul started to address the next problem in the church at Corinth. There were believers there who had a strong conscience regarding the eating of meat offered to idols, and they were not taking care to make sure that their rights did not become a stumbling block to other believers in the church with a weak conscience. So in short, while these believers were right in their theology, they were wrong in their attitude. They did have liberty, and they knew it, to eat this meat that had been offered to idols, but their liberty to do that, it should have been constrained by their love for other Christians, and it wasn't. And so it was leading them to disregard others. Sinclair Ferguson writes, We are given liberty in Christ in order to be servants of others, not in order to indulge our own preferences. So these Corinthians had full heads, but empty hearts. They had the right doctrine, the right understandings, but they were applying it all wrong with no love and affection or not enough love and affection for the brothers and sisters in their church. So Paul confronted them. Paul was after full heads and full hearts, which would result, he knew, in the giving up of rights, the giving up of rights out of love and for the good of others. And so he wrote these words in verse 9 of chapter 8. And this was the main point, remember, of chapter 8. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Which is why Paul himself had resolved to do this in chapter 8, verse 13. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble stumble. So the chapter we enter today, chapter 9, at first it seems completely out of place. It looks like at first glance it is an abrupt subject change before then returning to this topic of meat offered to idols in chapter 10, but it's not. It's not a subject change. It does fit. What we have in this chapter is an example of applying chapter 8. So chapter 9 is now going to be like a case study 
This is an example of what it looks like to apply chapter 9. And the example is Paul himself. Paul is our example. So in chapter 9, think of it this way, we're going to see that Paul practiced what he preached. So what he preached in chapter 8, he shows us he is himself practicing in chapter 9. Paul's liberties, they were constrained by love. Paul was willing to even refuse his rights. Rights are a big deal to us. Rights are a very big deal to us, specifically as Americans. And Paul was willing to refuse his rights for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's get started today. And as we do, let us not forget that this book that we are reading from and studying from is not just any book. It really is the book. It is the Bible. It is God's word. It has been inspired by God for the good of his people. The Bible, think of it this way, is God's self disclosure. And so we pray every week that God would right now that he would send his Holy Spirit to work in and among us so that we would understand his word. So that we would understand this text right now and how it applies to our lives today. So with that in mind, would you please bow your heads with me? Our father in heaven. We need you. We are not as independent as we like to think we are. We are dependent children, dependent on you, our Heavenly Father, every one of us. And if you don't help us now to see the truth of your word, we just won't see it. So fill us to overflowing with the knowledge that will pour over in love toward you and toward others. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you are using one of our church Bibles, you will find today's text on page 899. If you're able, I would encourage you to put your phone away, put it in your pocket, put your Bible on your lap. Follow along with us today. Before we get started, let's remember what Paul is doing in this chapter. He is applying the principle of chapter 8. He is taking care that his rights do not somehow become a stumbling block to other Christians. So in these first 14 verses, Paul will put himself out there as an example in three stages. So for those of you who like to take notes, this might be helpful as you track along with the sermon. There are three stages in which Paul is going to put himself out as an example of applying the principles he laid out in chapter 8. Let me give them to you as three simple headings. Defense, declaration, and denial. Paul will defend his apostleship, 
Then he will declare his rights. And finally, he will issue a surprising denial. So let's begin with Paul's defense in verses 1 through 3. This is Paul's defense in verses 1 through 3. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? Now heads up, there are a lot of questions. For those of you that don't like rhetorical questions, you might struggle a bit. I count 16 questions. That's more questions than verses here. Verse 2. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And I know it doesn't look like it in your Bible, but verse 3 now, that next verse, it, it could be referring to the verses before, or it could be referring to the verses to follow. We're just, we're not sure. But I think it refers to the verses before. So in other words, here is what Paul just did in verses 1 through 2, verse 3. This, what he just said in those verses, is my defense to those who would examine me. So Paul in these three verses is defending his apostleship to some in the church of Corinth who were critically examining him. And Paul begins by asking Two questions, and they are rhetorical questions. Question one, am I not free? And the answer is yes, of course. Paul is free. He is enslaved to no man. Paul is obligated to no man. He is a man with freedom. He is a man with liberties. He is a man with rights. Now, here's the second question. It is, am I not an apostle? And the answer again is, yes. Paul is an apostle. But apparently many in Corinth, they doubted his apostleship. When he wasn't around, when he wasn't there, they didn't have great things to say about him. They, they questioned him. They questioned his authority specifically and therefore questioned whether or not they even needed to listen to him. So that's why he defends it here. And to defend his apostleship, he then gives two proofs. First, he asks, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? So here's the deal. This was a qualification to be an apostle. In order to be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus so that you could personally testify to others about his victory over death. So it couldn't be something that you heard he had done. It needed to be something that you yourself, to be an apostle, that you had witnessed. So we know this from chapter 1 of Acts. In verse 22, you'll remember that the surviving disciples were looking to replace Judas. And so they said this to one another. Beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men 
must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And then in Peter's great sermon of Acts chapter 2, in verse 32, he said, This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are witnesses. He was talking about the other apostles. And then later in the book of Acts, in chapter 4, verse 33, the apostles' ministry, it was described this way. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So to be an apostle, you had to have seen the resurrected Jesus. And so Paul says in the second half of verse 2, Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord. In other words, he was an eyewitness. In Acts chapter 9, the risen Jesus himself confronted and commissioned Paul, you remember, when he was on the road on his way to the city of Damascus. And then Paul asks a second question. It's a second proof of his apostleship. Are not you my workmanship in the Lord. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal, or another word for that word is proof, you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So Paul is appealing to them personally as he defends his apostleship. He says, okay, I can understand that maybe others who don't know me that I haven't spent time with, that I haven't ministered to, that they would question whether or not I am an apostle. But not you. You know I am an apostle. You are the seal of my apostleship. He has a special relationship with these people. Their lives, and they know this, their lives have been changed through Paul's ministry. So if anyone should affirm that Paul is an apostle, it should be them. So that's his defense. His defense of his apostleship. So next we look at verses 4 through 12a. And then we'll look at verse 13 and 14. This is Paul's declaration. Paul moves now from a defensive position to an offensive position. He has defended his apostleship, and now he's going to declare his rights as an apostle. And if you look with me, he's going to do it in a sermon-like fashion. So let me show you what I mean, and then we'll read the actual verses. So Paul's going to make his main point in verses 4 through 6. It's good to do that at the beginning of a sermon. Then he gives an illustration in verse 7. He then offers biblical support in verses 8 through 10. He will draw a conclusion in verses 11 through 12a, followed by one more illustration in verse 13. And then finally a concluding restatement of his main point, and he gives that in verse 14. So in other words, very methodically, Paul here is declaring what his rights are 
as an apostle. So let's go back now and begin. Let's read about him declaring these rights. Let's begin with his main point, which he states in verses 4 through 6. Do we, that is the apostles, do we not have the right to eat and drink? It's the first thing he says. It's going to become clear as we read on what Paul means here, which is that these apostles, as they went from town to town, that they had a right to have their needs provided for by a local church. And not only their own needs as they went from town to town, their own needs should be met, not only their own needs, but also the needs of their family. Look at verse 5. Do we not have the right, also here he is saying, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Paul was single at this time, but apparently other apostles had wives with them. And presumably, if they had wives, they had children. Verse 6, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living. So Paul is talking here about financial remuneration. An apostle would come to town and he would plant and pastor a church and he should be able to be freed from working outside the church for a living so that he would be freed up to serve the church. So Paul will make this explicitly clear, look down in his concluding restatement in verse 14. The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So this is his main point. This is the right he's talking about. It is the duty of a church, every church, it is the duty for every member of every church to give. And it is their responsibility to give financially in order to support gospel ministry and gospel ministers. And so that is the right that Paul declares in these verses. And it's his main point is to declare that right. Well, next he illustrates that point in verse 7 by saying, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So this is a common sense illustration, isn't it? He's taking from everyday life. No one would expect a soldier to pay his own expenses. No one would blame a farmer for eating grapes from his vineyard. And no one would blame a shepherd for benefiting from his own sheep. Well, the same is true for an apostle. His work also should result in provision. So to biblically support his claim, Paul now turns to the Old Testament, specifically citing Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. And he does this in verses 8 through 10. Do I say these things on human authority? In other words, is this just, am I making this up? Is this my idea? Is this the first time that God has said this? 
does not the law, he appeals to the Old Testament, say the same? Verse 9, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now, for most of them, it would be clear what Paul meant. Most of you don't have oxen. And this could be lost on us. So picture this, on top of a hill, you'd have a large, round, stone platform, and that was called a threshing floor. And on this threshing floor would go your crop, like stalks of wheat, for example. And then an oxen would be tied to a post in the middle of that threshing floor. And then as that oxen would walk in circles... The wheat under its hooves would be crushed and the grain would be separated from the chaff. And then people would come along with their winnowing forks, and this was why it was on top of a hill. Then they would throw this up into the air and the chaff, which weighed less, would blow away. And then the grain, which they wanted, would drop to the floor. So Deuteronomy 25.4 says this, hey, when you're doing that, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading the grain. In other words, let him eat. That's messed up to put a muzzle on him. That's mean. That's cruel. He's doing all this hard work and you're going to put a muzzle on him so he can't even eat and enjoy the grain that he's producing. So let him eat the grain as he goes. Let him, the principle, let him benefit from his work. Let him enjoy his labor. Okay, so if that's true for an animal. If that is true for an animal, it's true for a man. And it's true for a pastor. That's Paul's point here. Verse 9b. It is for oxen. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. So here's the conclusion Paul now draws in verse 11 and 12. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And the answer again is no. That's what an apostle was doing. He was going to these churches and he was sowing spiritually. He was planting spiritual seed and they should, they had a right to reap, not just spiritually, but also materially. Verse 12, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. And now skip to verse 13. Here Paul offers another illustration. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. So there's two more examples from the secular world even, of people doing so-called spiritual work and receiving material benefit. 
And then finally, in this mini-sermon, Paul concludes by restating his main point in verse 14 in the same way. The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. The Lord commanded it to be so, he says. He may be referring to Luke chapter 10, verse 7. There, there are 72 followers that Jesus sends out to minister and to disciple people. And before he sends them out, Jesus said these words, And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. So according to Paul here, this is a commandment that a church is to follow. You could argue, and I think Paul does, that if this is a right afforded to an oxen and a soldier and a farmer and a shepherd and to a temple worker, then an apostle, there weren't many of them, then an apostle has an even greater claim on this right. And Paul has proven that he is an apostle. So that's what Paul gets at in verse 12. When he says, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. Even more. Because we are among the few apostles. Ephesians 2 verse 20 will say that the church, that we, the church is built on the foundation of the words and ministry of the apostles and the prophets. So this is Paul's rightful claim. So there's only one more thing left for us to see in the text. Paul has defended his apostleship and has declared his rights. And now finally, let's look at Paul's surprising denial. And I say surprising because what do you expect Paul to do at this point? I mean, he has laid out this case emphatically, hasn't he? He's declaring these rights that he has as an apostle. It's like a small, short sermon. He doesn't just make a point. He makes the point. He illustrates it three times. He gives it biblical support. He restates that main point. He comes back to it. I mean, he's made a solid case. He has declared his rights. So what do you expect Paul to do at this point after emphatically making this point that the church is obligated to take care of Paul? Pay up. I mean, that's what he's that's the logical conclusion. I mean, if I stood up here today and I made a case like that, and this is your responsibility, and this is your job. Now, you already do pay me as your pastor. But if you did not, if I was not receiving a salary to be a pastor at this church, where would you think that sermon was going? It's about time you pay up. <laughs> I don't have to do that. But Paul wasn't getting paid up until this point, so that is what you expect. 
I have been serving you and ministering to you. You wouldn't even be a church if it wasn't for me. I came and planted that church. I pastored you until your feet were off the ground. I made sure that there were other pastors to take my place. I taught them how to appoint other pastors. You're still a pain in my butt. You're writing me letters. I'm having to take time to write you back. You have all these questions, I have to answer them. You have all these problems, I have to address them. Then I think there's more theology, there's more doctrine that you need to know. I don't know why you don't have it. There's division, there's problems. So here I am now writing you a letter. And now he goes through these verses and makes this emphatic point that I have rights as an apostle. And this is the right I want you to think about. I have the right that you would meet my needs and my family's needs. That you would provide for me. But that's not the point Paul is making here. Look at verse 12b. The second half of verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you see that first word at the beginning of that sentence? Nevertheless. In other words, in spite of the case I have just rolled out for you. In spite of that, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. I've never demanded this right, Paul is saying. I've never claimed this right. I'm not demanding it now. I'm not claiming it now. And why not? But, he wrote, we endure anything. Like having to provide for himself as a tent maker. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Now, exactly how Paul claiming this right would have been an obstacle to the gospel, we don't know for sure. But evidently, Paul felt like demanding that right would put an obstacle in the road. This literally means that you have a road or a path on the way to something and you dig up that road and you dig up that path. It's that kind of an obstacle. He felt that demanding this right and claiming this right would be like digging up the path on the way to the gospel. Maybe they would accuse Paul of being in it for the money. Maybe they would accuse him of being after financial benefit. And so he said, you know what? I'm not going to claim this right. Puts him in a position of great power, doesn't it? They have no power over him. They have no control over him. He's free from constraint. We don't know his exact reason. But we do know that Paul was concerned that somehow claiming this right of provision would have become an obstacle in the way of the gospel. And so here's the point. So what does he do? He gives it up. He gives it up. He declares his rights and then he denies this right. I don't need it. I don't want it. 
You see, in this first part of the chapter, Paul is showing us how he practices what he preaches. This is how he follows his own exhortation. He gave it in chapter A, verse 9. I'll read it again. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And then he makes a case for his right. And then he denies that right. So that he may not become an obstacle to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is Paul's liberty constrained by love. Did he have the right to claim provisions from them? He did. Did he have that liberty? Did he have that freedom? He did, but his liberty is constrained by love. He is refusing his rights for the sake of the gospel. He has a full head and he has a full heart. Michael Green was an Anglican theologian and he wrote, Freedom is not license to do what I want, but liberation to do what I ought. That's from this text. Chapter 9 and in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. Freedom is not License to do what I want, but liberation to do what I ought. In conclusion, I'm not an apostle. You are not an apostle. You may have heard people say or people will say that they are an apostle. They're not. There are no more apostles. Past tense, Ephesians 2. They are the foundation of the church. A foundation that has already been laid. Both apostles and prophets. There's also not prophets, but that's another topic. So you and I do not have these same rights that Paul had. You do not have the rights of an apostle. You cannot relate to these rights that he was declaring here. You don't have those same rights to claim or deny, but you have other rights. You certainly have perceived rights. So even rights that you may not actually have, you have things that you believe that you have a right to. And you have a claim to. Freedoms and liberties that have been given to you or that you believe have been given to you. A right to... Or as our Constitution say, a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm not sure those are actually rights. I personally think we've, we've all forfeited our rights before God through our rebellion. But our founding fathers felt that they were rights. And so I'm sure many of you do. Some of you in some ways are in positions of authority and there are rights and claims that you have that have been given to you, freedoms and liberties that have been given to you because you are in positions of authority. You might be a husband or a wife, a father or a mother, a teacher, 
some sort of leader or director, a doctor, an employer, a coach? What do you feel your rights are? What are your rights? What do you feel entitled to? What do you feel rightful in claiming from others? What are you ready and willing to demand? These are questions to help you and I determine what our perceived rights are. Because Paul's telling us what to do with those rights. So we've got to identify them. Think about your relationships. What do you get upset about? What do you get angry about in others? What do you feel entitled to? What do you expect from others? What do you try and claim? What do you even demand? Is it respect? Honor? Obedience? Affirmation? You feel you have a right to be heard? A right to be listened to? Acceptance? Do you expect your achievements to be applauded? Do you expect your affections in a relationship to be reciprocated? Your service to be compensated? Do you demand these things? Do you demand them at all cost? If so, I wonder if, like the Corinthians had, in those relationships you have actually become an obstacle to the gospel. So those you care about and love, or maybe just those you know and are responsible for, and there is a path in front of them. And that path leads to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the end of that path, we'd be hearing that gospel. And we would pray, believing that gospel. You don't want to do anything that would dig up that path so that it's not able to be crossed or passed. You want to do the opposite. You want to see those that you know and those that you love come to hear the gospel and believe the gospel. You would never want to be an obstacle. You wouldn't want to dig up that road. You'd want to pave that road if you could. You'd want to lead others on that road if you could. Well, Paul is saying that the way that he does not become an obstacle on that way to the gospel is by foregoing these rights, by being willing to have these liberties, these freedoms, constrained by love, by a willingness at the end of the day to refuse these rights. It's not the most important thing. And if he believes in this case that if he were to assert those rights and demand those rights, it would be an obstacle. And so what does Paul do? He gives it up. Why? Because he is taking care that his rights do not somehow become a stumbling block to others. Are you willing? Are you willing to, in Paul's words, endure anything? 
Are you willing to endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ? There is one who, and only one, who has all the rights. Every right that is to be had, every freedom that is to be had, he has every single one of them. Only one man. For him, from him, through him are all things, even his enemies are a footstool beneath his feet. He is very God himself, Jesus Christ. There is not a right he does not possess. There is not a freedom he does not have. There is not a liberty he does not own. He is constrained by nothing. He is constrained by no one. And yet, Philippians 2 verses 5 and following says, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus gave up many rights. Many rights to dwell among us. And not only to dwell among us, but to die. How many rights did he not claim along the way? From beginning to end of his ministry. How many freedoms did he forego? How many liberties were constrained by his love for the Father and his love for his people? I suspect that's an infinite answer. There's no end to the freedoms and the liberties and rights that he was willingly giving up for those he loved. And so he came and dwelled among us and ultimately died. And we remember why he died. He came and lived and suffered and died in the place of sinners. So that sinners could be saved. So that if we would hear that good news and that gospel and turn from going our own way and turn to him put our faith in Him, trust in Him alone for our salvation, that we would be saved, the Bible says. That we would be truly freed. And that His life and death would count as our life and death. His life would count for our life. Thank goodness. Because my life falls severely short. And we're not talking pre-Christian Eric. I'm talking post-Christian Eric. It falls very short every single day. 
and I fall and I stumble and I cause others to fall and I cause others to stumble. I sin. I choose to go my own way over and over and over again. If I were to be saved by my obedience and the keeping of God's law and fruit in my life and my faithfulness, I would be damned. So his life counts for my life. It's his righteousness. It's his perfect record. It's his faithfulness. It's his sinlessness. It's his life that counts for my life. What about punishment for the stuff I've already done and will continue to do? Well, his death counts for my death. He was punished in my place so that I don't have to suffer the wrath of God. So that I don't have to be alienated from him forever. Why? Why can I enjoy this freedom? Because Jesus gave up his own. He gave up his rights. So will I now claim and hold on to my puny rights to get the respect, honor, affirmation, acceptance that I'm looking for on this earth and possibly become an obstacle to the gospel? Will I really do that? I don't want to. And these words from Paul, they help me. To understand what it is that I'm doing when I demand those kinds of rights. And what would be more pleasing and honoring to God.